0: The Widow Ching Pirate. The author who uses the phrase female corsairs runs the risk of calling up an awkward image, that of the now faded Spanish operetta, with its theories of obvious servant girls playing the part of choreographed pirates, unnoticeably cardboard seas. And yet there have been cases of female pirates, women skilled in the art of sailing, The governance of barbarous crews the pursuit and looting of majestic ships on the high seas one such woman was mary reed who was quoted once as saying that the profession of piracy wasn't for just anybody and if you were going to practice it with dignity you had to be a man of courage like herself in the crude beginnings of her career when she was not yet the captain of her own ship a young man she fancied was insulted by the ship's bully. Mary herself picked a quarrel with the bully and fought him, hand to hand, in the old ways of the Isles of the Caribbean. The long, narrow, and undependable breech loader in her left hand, the trusty saber in her right. The pistol failed her, but the saber acquitted itself admirably. In 1720, the bold career of Mary Reed was interrupted by a Spanish gallows in Santiago de la Vega on the island of Jamaica. Another female pirate of those waters was Anne Bunny, a magnificent Irish woman of high breasts and fiery hair who risked her life more than once in boarding ships. She stood on the deck with Mary Reed and then with her on the scaffold. Her lover, Captain John Rackham, met his own noose at that same hanging. And, contemptuous, emerged with that harsh variant on Ayx's rebuke to Bodabdil. If you'd fought like a man, you needn't have been hanged like a dog. Another woman pirate, but a more daring and young, long-lived one, plied the waters of Far Asia, from the Yellow Sea to the rivers on the borders of Annam. I'm speaking of the doughty widow, Ching. The Years of Apprenticeship In 1797, the shareholders in the many pirate ships of the Yellow Sea formed a consortium, and they chose one Captain Ching, a just though strict man, tested under fire, to be the admiral of their new fleet. Ching was so harsh and exemplary in his sacking of the coasts, that the terrified residents implored the emperor with gifts and tears to send them aid. Nor did their pitiable requests fall upon deaf ears. They were ordered to set fire to their villages, abandon their fisheries, move inland, and learn the unknown science of agriculture. They did all this, and so, finding only deserted coastlines, the frustrated invaders were forced into waylaying ships a depredation far more unwelcome than raids on the coasts, for it seriously threatened trade. Once again, the imperial government responded decisively. It ordered the former fishermen to abandon their plows and oxen and return to their oars and nets. At this, the peasants, recalling their former terrors, balked. So the authorities determined upon another, another course, they would make admiral ching the master of the royal stables ching was willing to accept the buy-off the stockholders however learned of the decision in the nick of time and their righteous indignation took the form of a plate of rice served up with poisoned greens the delicacy proved fatal the soul of the former admiral and the newly appointed master of the royal stables, was delivered up to the deities of the sea. His widow, transfigured by the double treachery, called the pirates together, explained the complex case, and exhorted them to spurn both the emperor's deceitful clemency and odious employment in the service of the shareholders with a bent for poison. She proposed what might be called freelance piracy. She also proposed that they cast votes for a new admiral, and she herself was elected. She was a sapling, thin woman of sleepy eyes and carries riddled smile. Her oiled black hair shone brighter than her eyes. Under Missus Ching's calm command, the ships launched forth into danger and on to the high seas. The command. Thirteen years of methodical adventuring ensued. The fleet was composed of six squadrons, each under its own banner, red, yellow, green, black, purple, and one, the admiral's own, with the emblem of a serpent. The commanders of the squadrons had such names as Bird and Stone, Scourge of the Eastern Sea, Jewel of the Whole Crew, Wave of Many Fishes, and High Sun. The rules of the fleet, composed by the widow Ching herself, were unappealable and severe, and their measured laconic style was devoid of those withered flowers of rhetoric that lend a ridiculous sort of majesty to the usual official pronouncements of the Chinese. An alarming example of which we shall encounter shortly. Here are some of the articles of the fleet's law. Not the least thing shall be taken privately from the stolen and plundered goods. All shall be registered, and the pirate receive for himself out of ten parts only two. Eight parts belong to the storehouse, called the general fund. Taking anything out of this general fund without permission shall be death. If any man goes privately on shore, or what is called transgressing the bars... He shall be taken and his ears perforated in the presence of the whole fleet, repeating the same, he shall suffer death. No person shall depart at his pleasure captive women taken in the villages and open spaces, and brought on board a ship. He must first request the ship's purser for permission, and then go aside in the ship's hold. To use violence against any woman without permission of the purser shall be punished by death. Reports brought back by prisoners state that the mess on the pirate ships consisted mainly of hardtack, fattened rats, and cooked rice. On days of combat, the crew would mix gunpowder with their liquor, marked cards and loaded dice, drinking and fantan, the visions of the opium pipe and little lamp filled idle hours. Two swords simultaneously employed were the weapon of choice. Before boarding, the pirates would sprinkle their cheeks and bodies with garlic water, a sure charm against injury by fire breathed from muzzles. The crew of a ship traveled with their women, the captain with his harem, which might consist of five or six women, and be renewed with each successive victory. The young emperor, Cha Qing, speaks. In June or July of 1809, an imperial decree was issued, from which I translate the first paragraph and the last. Many people criticized its style. Miserable and injurious men, men who stamp upon bread, Men who ignore the outcry of tax collectors and orphans. Men whose small clothes bear the figure of the phoenix and the dragon. Men who deny the truth of printed books. Men who let their tears flow facing north. Such men disturb the happiness of our rivers and the erstwhile trustworthiness of our seas. Days and night, their frail and crippled ships defy the tempest. Their object is not a benevolent one. They are not, and never have been, the seaman's bosom friend. Far from lending aid, they fall upon him with ferocity and make him an unwilling guest of ruin, mutilation, and even death. Thus, these men violate the natural laws of the universe and their offenses make rivers overflow their banks and flood the plains. Sons turn against their fathers The principles of wetness and dryness exchange places. Therefore, I commend thee to the punishment of these crimes, Admiral Kuo Long. Never forget, clemency is the emperor's to give. The emperor's subject would be presumptuous in granting it. Be cruel, be just, be obeyed, be victorious. The incidental reference to the crippled ships was, of course... A lie. Its purpose was to raise the courage of Kuolong's expedition. Ninety days later, the forces of the Widow Ching engaged the empires. Almost a thousand ships did battle from sun up to sundown. A mixed chorus of bells, drums, cannon bursts, curses, gongs, and prophecies accompanied the action. The empire's fleet was destroyed. Admiral Kuo Long found occasion to exercise neither the mercy forbidden him nor the cruelty to which he was exhorted. He himself performed a ritual which our own defeated generals choose not to observe. He committed suicide. The Terrified Coastlines and river banks. Then the 600 junks of war and the haughty widow's 40,000 victorious pirates sailed into the mouth of the Young River, sowing fire and appalling celebrations and orphans left and right. Entire villages were raised. In one of them, the prisoners numbered more than a thousand. 120 women who fled to the pathless refuge of the nearby stands of reeds or the paddy fields were betrayed by the crying of a baby and sold into slavery in Macau. Though distant... The pathetic tears and cries of mourning from those depredations came to the notice of Jia Qing, the son of heaven. Certain historians have allowed themselves to believe that the news of the ravaging of his people caused the emperor less pain than did the defeat of his punitive expedition. Be that as it may, the emperor organized a second expedition, terrible in banners sailors, soldiers, implements of war, provisions, soothsayers, and astrologers. This time, the force was under the command of Admiral Ting Kuei Hu. The heavy swarm of ships sailed into the mouth of the Zhujiang to cut off the pirate fleet. The widow rushed to prepare for battle. She knew it would be hard, very hard, almost desperate, For men, after many nights and even months of pillaging and idleness, had grown soft. But the battle did not begin. The sun peacefully rose and without haste set again into the quivering reeds. The men and the arms watched and waited. The noontimes were more powerful than they, and the siestas were infinite. The Dragon and the Vixen And yet, each evening, lazy flocks of weightless dragons rose high into the sky above the ships of the Imperial fleet and hovered delicately above the water, above the enemy decks. These comet-like kites were airy constructions of rice paper and reed, and each silvery or red body bore the identical characters. The widow anxiously studied that regular flight of meteors and in it read the confused and slowly-told fable of a dragon that had always watched over a vixen, in spite of the vixen's long ingratitude and constant crimes. The moon grew thin in the sky, and still the figures of rice paper and reed wrote the same story each evening, with almost imperceptible variations. The widow was troubled, and she brooded, When the moon grew fat in the sky and in the red-tinged water the story seemed to be reaching its end no one could predict whether infinite pardon or infinite punishment was to be let fall upon the vixen yet the inevitable end whichever it might be was surely approaching the widow understood she threw her two swords into the river knelt in the bottom of a boat and ordered that she be taken to the flagship of the emperor's fleet. It was evening. The sky was filled with dragons, this time yellow ones. The widow murmured a single sentence. The vixen seeks the dragon's wing as she stepped aboard the ship. The Apotheosis The chroniclers report that the vixen obtained her pardon, and that she dedicated her slow, old age to opium smuggling. She was no longer the widow. She assumed a name that might be translated the luster of true instruction. From this period, writes a historian, ships began to pass and repass in tranquility. All became quiet on the rivers and tranquil on the forest seas. People lived in peace and plenty men sold their arms and bought oxen to plow their fields they buried sacrifices said prayers on the tops of hills and rejoiced themselves by singing behind screens during the daytime monk eastman purveyor of inequities the tufts of one america whether profiled against a backdrop of blue painted walls or of the sky itself Two tufts sheathed in grave, black clothing dance, in boots with high stacked heels, a solemn dance. The tango of evenly matched knives, until suddenly a carnation drops from behind an ear, for a knife has plunged into a man, whose horizontal dying brings the dance without music to its end. Resigned, the other man adjusts his hat and devotes the years of his old age to telling the story of that clean-fought duel. That, to the least and last detail, is the story of the Argentine underworld. The story of the thugs and ruffians of New York has much more speed and much less grace. The hero, those shifting dodges, as tedious as a game of masks, in which one can never be certain who's who, fail to include the man's true name, if we allow ourselves to believe that there is such a thing as a man's true name. The fact is, the name given in the records division of the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn is Edward Osterman, later Americanized to Eastman. Odd, this brawling and testuous hoodlum was Jewish. He was the son of the owner of a restaurant that billed itself as kosher, where men with rabbinical beards might trustingly consume the blood and thrice clean meat of calves whose throats had been slit with righteousness. With his father's backing in 1892, at the age of 19, he opened a pet shop specializing in birds. Observing the life of animals, studying their small decisions, for inscrutable innocence was a passion that accompanied Monk Eastman to the end in later times of magnificence when he scorned the cigars of freckled seconds of Tammany Hall and pulled up to the finest horror houses in one of New York's first automobiles, a machine that looked like the by-blow of a Venetian gondola. he opened a second establishment, this one a front that was home to a hundred purebred cats and more than four hundred pigeons, none of which were for sale at any price. He loved every one of the creatures and would often stroll through the streets of the neighborhood with one purring cat on his arm and others trailing along ambitiously in his wake. He was a battered and monumental man. He had a short bull neck an unassailable chest, the long arms of a boxer, a broken nose. His face, though legended with scars, was less imposing than his body. He was bull legged like a jockey or a sailor. He might go shirtless or collarless and often went without a coat, but he was never seen without a narrow brimmed derby atop his enormous head. He is still remembered. Physically, the conventional gunman of the moving pictures is modeled after him, not the flabby and epicene Capone. It has been said that Louis Wolheim was used in Hollywood films because his features reminded people of the deplorable monk Eastman. Eastman would leave his house to inspect his gangster empire with blue feather pigeon perched on his shoulder like a bull with a heron on his hump. In 1894, there were many dance halls in New York City. Eastman was a bouncer in one of them. Legend has it that the manager wouldn't talk to him about the job, so Monk showed his qualifications by roundly demolishing the two gorillas that stood in the way of his employment. He held the job until 1899, feared and single-handed. For every obstreperous customer he subdued he would cut a notch in the bludgeon he carried one night a shining bald spot leaning over a beer caught his eye and eastman laid the man's scalp open with a tremendous blow i had 49 nicks in me stick and i wanted to make it an even 50 eastman later explained ruling the roast from 1899 onward, Eastman was not just famous, he was the ward boss of an important electoral district in the city, and he collected large payoffs from the red light houses, stuss games, street walkers, pickpockets, loft burglars, and footpads of that sordid fiefdom. The party would contract him when some mischief needed doing, and private individuals would come to him too. These are the fees he would charge for a job Ear chewed off, $15. Leg broke, $19. Shot in leg, $25. Stab, $25. Doing the big job, $100 and up. Sometimes, to keep his hand in, Eastman would do the job personally. A territorial dispute as subtle and ill-humored as those forestalled by international law brought him up against Paul Kelly, the famous leader of another gang. The boundary line had been established by bullets and border patrol skirmishes. Eastman crossed the line late late one night and was set upon by five of Kelly's men. With his blackjack and those lightning-quick simian arms of his, he managed to knock down three of them, but he was shot twice in the stomach and left for dead. He stuck his thumb and forefinger in the hot wounds and staggered to the hospital. Life, high fever, and death contended over Monk Eastman for several weeks, and but his lips would not divulge the names of his assailants. By the time he left the hospital, the war was in full swing. There was one shootout after another, and this went on for two years until the 19th of August, 1903. The Battle of Rivington Street. A hundred or more heroes, none quite resembling the mugshot, probably fading at that very moment in the mug books. A hundred heroes reeking of cigar smoke and alcohol. A hundred heroes in straw butters with bright colored bands. A hundred heroes, all suffering to a greater or less degree from shameful diseases, tooth decay, respiratory ailments, or problems with their kidneys. A hundred heroes as insignificant or splendid as those of Troy or Junin. Those were the men that fought that black deed of arms in the shadow of the elevated train. The cause of it was a raid that Kelly's enforcers had made, on a stuss game under Monk Eastman's protection. One of Kelly's men was killed, and the subsequent shootout grew into a battle of uncountable revolvers. From behind the tall pillars of the L, silent men with clean-shaven chins blazed away at one another. Soon, they were the center of a horrified circle of hired hacks, carrying impatient reinforcements, clutching Colt artillery. What were the protagonists in the battle feeling? First, I believe, the brutal conviction that the senseless, deafening noise of a hundred revolvers was going to annihilate, annihilate them instantly. Second, I believe, the no less erroneous certainty that if the initial volley didn't get them, they were invulnerable. Speculation notwithstanding, behind their parapets of iron in the night, they battled furiously. Twice the police tried to intervene, and twice they were repelled. At the first light of dawn, the battle died away, as though it were spectral or obscene. Under the tall arches raised by engineers, what remained were seven men gravely wounded, four men dead, and one lifeless pigeon the crackle of gunfire. The ward politicians for whom Monk Eastman worked had always publicly denied that such gangs existed, or had clarified that they were merely social clubs. The indiscreet battle on Rivington Street alarmed them. They called in Eastman and Kelly and impressed upon them the need to declare a truce. Kelly, who recognized that politicians were better than all the Colts ever made when it came to dissuading the police from their duty, immediately saw the light. Eastman, with the arrogance of his great stupid body, was spoiling for more grudge fights and more bullets. At first, he wouldn't hear of a truce, but the politicos threatened him with prison. Finally, the two illustrious thogs were brought together in a downtown dive. Each man had a scar clenched in his teeth, his right hand on his gun, and his watchful swarm of armed bodyguards hovering nearby. They came to a very American sort of decision. They would let the dispute be settled by a boxing match. Kelly was a skilled boxer. The match took place in an old barn, and it was stranger than fiction. 140 spectators watched. Tufts in cocked derby hats and women in Mikado tuck-ups, the high-piled, delicate hairdos of the day. The fight lasted two hours, and it ended in utter exhaustion. Within a week, gunshots were crackling again. Monk was arrested for the umpteenth time. The police relieved derived great amusement from his arrest. The judge prophesied for him, quite correctly, ten years in prison. Eastman versus Germany When the still perplexed monk Eastman got out of Sing Sing, the twelve hundred toughs in his gang had scattered. He couldn't manage to round them up again, so he resigned himself to working on his own. On the 8th of September, 1917, he was arrested for fighting and charged with disturbing the peace. On the 9th, he felt like he needed another sort of fight. So he enlisted in the army. We know several details of his service. We know that he was fervently opposed to the taking of prisoners and that once with just his rifle butt, he prevented that deplorable practice. We know that once he escaped from the hospital and made his way back to the trenches. We know that he distinguished himself in the conflicts near Montfaucon. We know that afterward, he was heard to say that, in his opinion, there were lots of dance halls in the Bowery that were tougher than that so called Great War of theirs. The Mysterious Logical End. On the 25th of December 1920, Monk Eastman's body was found on one of New York's downtown streets. He had been shot five times. A common alley cat, blissfully ignorant of death, was pacing a bit perplexedly about the body.